Welcome to the ESP PPE podcast, Proper Project Expectations. Just a quick setup or reminder of what we're doing here. This is our 2023 summer series covering selling under NEM3, working in solar in California, and why it's still the best place to sell solar in the country if you know how. We're all about learn, then earn, whether you're fresh to the industry or a sun-baked seasoned pro. In this podcast series, we'll go through the course of a project from some pre-sale topics all the way to final system activation. Don't take anything we say as gospel. Just try it on and see if you like it. Here we go. Well, Jackson, we can, we can focus on what this meeting is and then I'll, I'll ask you later. No, I want to hear about your wife and whatever that catastrophe was. <laughs> I was with you the whole time. Danny just wouldn't let me be I'm a sorry, man. I don't know why. I swear I made you a host from the get-go. I don't know why. <laughs> so here I am joined watching you guys, you know, have just, your own little webinar and I'm the only viewer. Audience uh, of one. It's so hilarious, man. Good times, good times. Yeah, sorry, man. Appreciate appreciate you joining. I'll try and fix that for the next time we do this. <laughs> uh, good news is the first seven minutes or first eight minutes of this video is going to get edited right out. Oh, yeah. We're going to trim right. all this out. All right. So here, this is how they do it on podcast. That's the start. Okay. This is where we're starting recording. Welcome to the Energy Service Partners PPE Podcast. I'm Danny O'Malley, Director of Marketing here at ESP. I'm joined by the one and only Andy Schwartz. Hey there, party people. And Mr. Brandon Barton. Green means go. Let's go. Let's Let's go. go. And the esteemed Jack Walker. Hey, Danny. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. We are going to go over some things that you can expect to see uh, when you're selling solar in California. We are calling this PPE for proper project expectations also stands for, you know, personal protective equipment, which is another important safety component of any construction site. Obviously, we're also calling this the good, the bad and the ugly affectionately, just because we always want all of our projects to go through smoothly, right? Everything you can do to help uh, set the expectations correctly and give us all the info we need to provide a great experience for the homeowner. That is always what we're after. But occasionally that's gonna that's gonna change. There might be there might be some unforeseen things that uh, have to pivot after we're starting a project. So that's where the uh, the bad and the ugly come in. But we want you to be equipped with knowing what we do when we encounter something that could be considered ugly uh, or you know not the smoothest experience. And so you're you're properly equipped to reset expectations and help get get the project uh, moving forward smoothly. That's right. The real question is: Are you down? with PPE. Yeah, you know me. Yeah, you know expectations me. are everything. In the sales world, setting the proper expectations is really the key to having the best customer experience um, and gaining referrals. One of the big things I think we want to make sure that this whole summer session of proper project expectations or the good, bad, and the ugly, it's going to revolve around NEM 3.0 right? How are we selling in Cali? What are we expecting in Cali? Let's bring all the sales back to Cali. So let's get fired up and let's get ready and let's start selling this summer. For the first episode, we were going to go over something that I like to call how to spot solar ready roofs. 
Now, this is a little bit more uh, complicated than just looking at the looking up above and saying, hey, yeah, there's room for solar panels. Cool. Let's do it. We actually have this uh, asset that we created for sales crews. It's been on our website, on our blog, on our social media uh, for a long, long time, but wanted to dive into each of these topics. So we'll break each of these down a little bit further. We will, of course, have many episodes of this uh, series where we're going to be diving into some of these topics quite a bit more granularly, such as roofing, but that's a uh, another time. Uh, yeah, just trying to help you guys get uh, as much of your scouting done up, up front. So again, fewer surprises. If, if you're going for houses that look like good candidates and you know what to look for to avoid ones that could be problems, that's the best thing you can do to help make more money faster, help projects go through smoothly, help get more referrals. That's what we're all about, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point, Danny, is time is money, right? So don't don't spend all your time something that's not beneficial for you and the homeowner. That's all. Yeah. Key, key yeah, thing here, too, is whether you're new to the industry or you're a salty solar dog, um, this information is going to be helpful for you in this new climate, this new world that we're selling in in California. And so this could be an awesome refresher for you, or it could be brand new information. Uh, and that's why we wanted to have Jack on the call as well. He's the guru out in the field. Um, and where Brandon and I are more of the sales guys in the home. We've been in the homes. We've been in thousands of homes. Um, and then we've got Danny to put all the pieces together, link this whole thing together so that it's exciting and fun and new for anybody watching right now. Well, I think it's a great topic, right? Because there's no such thing as, quote unquote, a solar ready roof, right? Homeowners and builders have the ability to make a home, quote unquote, solar ready. And they do that typically by putting conduits in places that are going to come down through the roof and pop out through the wall or typically in, in proximity of the main panel. But when you're a sales rep and you're out in the field and you're looking for, you know, a roof that's going to be conducive to putting solar on, there's no such thing as solar ready. There's preferable, which is a roof that has sort of no obstructions and a roof that faces due south. But even if you don't have those perfect conditions, it doesn't mean that the solar roof isn't, quote unquote, ready for solar, right? East facing roofs perform very, very well. West-facing roofs perform better, not necessarily from a production standpoint, but from a value of that solar production. And of course, South produces the best, right? So knowing those three things armed with a few pieces of information from this thing, sales reps should have a much better idea of what they're looking at and how successful the sale is going to be or the production of the system that they're going to offer to the homeowner is going to be. Jack, you had a great thing that you said to me on a call the other day of what to what goes into every solar sale. What are the key ingredients that's going to make it a successful solar sale, right? It's you as a person have to qualify and your home has to qualify, the site itself. Yeah. Right. You wanna you wanna go into that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, I learned a long time ago, uh, way back in 2011 when I was working with a company called Sun Edison. And one of my mentors at the time, I was brand new to solar. And he said, Jack, the easiest way to think about the sales process is it's about qualifying. 
the homeowner has to qualify. The electrical panel has to qualify. And if it doesn't, we have to change it. And the roof has to qualify and or the house, so to speak. And if the roof itself doesn't qualify, there's things that can be done. If the electrical panel doesn't qualify, there's things that can be done. But knowing what the qualifications are going into it makes it a lot easier. If you don't have a weathered to the smithereens roof, you're likely going to be able to put solar on it. If we're not inundated with our obstructions, we're likely going to be able to put solar on it. And the same can be said about your electrical panel. But I think we want to save that piece for maybe a different podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll touch on it here real quick. But wanted to hit just a couple couple things uh, further on the roof 101 you were talking about. We'll we'll go into a much deeper dive once we have a, a later special guest on the episode from our roofing department. Just a little teaser to tune in next time or maybe a couple times from now. But we like to get everybody acquainted with talking about the pitch of a roof and the azimuth of a roof. And that's basically how steep it is and which direction it's facing. So Jack, you already talked about it. East and West are going to do just fine. South is best because it captures sunlight all day long, effectively. One of the fun things that I used to do at a previous solar company was the roof sizing, where um, before every appointment, they would call in and say, hey, I need somebody to look at this roof and tell me how many panels can fit on it. Now, some solar sales companies are going to have tools that you can do that yourself some some of you're going to be set up differently where you're kind of flying in blind to a degree and you have to be a good uh, estimator or guesstimator as it were so just knowing these concepts and kind of knowing what to look for is going to help you out a lot hey danny you just said something um self performs the best and it reminded me of a 101 class i took a really long time ago and i was surprised at how many people didn't know the answer so I'd like to throw it out here. Andy, I'm not putting you on the spot. And Brandon, I'm not putting you on the spot. But I'm going to leave a pause for you guys to think about it. And then I'll throw the real answer out. Do you guys know why? And do you think most sales reps know why South is the best performing azimuth? I do. Andy, you're shaking your head. I wanna, I'd want i love to hear your <laughs> answer. But I don't want to put you in a difficult spot in case you get it wrong. Hey, that's what editing's for. All right, yeah. Andy, cool. Andy can Andy, be as wrong as he wants to be. <laughs> no matter what I say, we're going to get it right here in post. Um, no, I think kind of the, the easiest way to break it down is first, do I know, do I think most sales reps understand why South facing roofs are best? I would say, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to guess high and say 75% of them do know 25% of them have no clue. Okay. Um, and my take on it is it actually has to do with latitude and longitude where we are on the planet why yeah. south facing roofs are That's the right. best production is because where That's the right. sun hits us on the globe that we're at so 100 percent. so we yeah. are in the northern hemisphere right yeah. the sun uh let me rephrase let me rephrase this the earth travels around the sun whoa, and whoa, the whoa. path that we follow is on. the equatorial line right You're so because we are north of the equatorial line the sun's predominant position is always in the south. It's always going to be south of us. It doesn't matter if we're in Miami, Florida. It doesn't matter if we're in Appleton, Wisconsin. It's always going to be south of us. And, and I would like to take it a reason. step further personally. Um, I always aim best for southwest because we're not only trying to beat the sun, but we're also trying to beat the utility. So it's based on time of use. And time of use now is between you know, the later hours of the day. So if you can face it towards that time frame, which Southwest becomes predominantly better. So that's always been my focus. Yeah. Really you're, glad you brought that up. You're spot on. It's the 
the amount of production is going to be largest in the South. The value of that production is always going to be greatest in the West because that's when most people are coming home, turning things mm. on between four and seven o'clock at night, especially in the summertime, that sun's staying up in some cases till eight, nine o'clock at night. And systems, we've seen system production in Northern California go until 845, nine o'clock at night. Like it's not uncommon for this to happen. So the value of that power, because when homeowners are home and being able to use it in that moment has a much greater factor on producing systems that are more valuable to a consumer than just what the production number is. This is so huge for NEM3. This is absolutely, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up, Brandon, because this is definitely one of the things we want to coach people on is I always loved just recommending use Google Earth or or even better uh, Google Project Sunroof. You can use those just as scouting tools. Just pull up a neighborhood that you want to go hit and say, hey, look, that's a big old wide open roof that's facing roughly south by southwest or, you know, whatever. And I don't see any panels on it. I'm going to go have a chat with that person, see what's going on. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think we can move along. That's yeah. One last thing on that. I think it's always fun to ask this question. What is the optimal pitch of a roof? Oh boy. In, in Southern California or in just in California in general, or or better yet, or how, how come you won't tilt my panels up to this specific degree that I want? This is something we got from homeowners all the time i I, i've studied this believe me i've researched this i know exactly what at what what tilt i want my panels at yeah what's the what's the the, what's the rebuttal to that because that's something that you're going to run into probably as a sales rep on the door somebody who is the the deep deep researcher and thinks they know exactly (laughs) the best way to do everything themselves what yeah what, what do you guys what do you guys use to handle that what do you think jack let me, yeah, let me, let me go first. I don't want to touch the, which angle is the best to produce at. Um, we're typically starting with the angle of the roof. So any, mm-hmm. any angle we add to that is going to change the overall projection of what the system is. Right. Yeah. Um, I will tell you this, uh, my understanding from all of the engineers that I've chatted with, even our own design team, the solar roof penetrations and the standoffs are designed in a way to allow air to flow underneath. And that airflow underneath does two things. One, it cools the panels, but two, it also creates like what's called a plenum and plenum that plenum will allow wind to actually flow under and over. And because the wind is going to flow at the same speed, it doesn't create quote unquote, a lift like a wing on an airplane would do. Right. So, 99% of the times we want to follow the plenum or the plane of the roof because it creates less lift and it has less likelihood of being affected negatively by strong or high winds. No matter what we use, the very best we're going to see is something like 70 or 90 mile an hour pullout speeds. And if we get to a place like Palm Springs, where they have dust storms and wind storms, and the winds can get up to 130 miles an hour, like we don't want to create a sail that is going to then go sailing off of somebody's roof. And then, of course, create a big liability issue. Well, that's so funny you said that. That's exactly the phrase I used. Hey, are we putting up a solar system or are we turning your house into a sailboat? Yeah. Hey, and I think it's important I'm not to know. A big fan like, of them. You, see them, you see them all over the place. You know they exist. The amount of stress put on the framing of the house 
from that lift and wind loads it is ridiculous, right? There's a lot of stress factors. So we care about the home. And that's exactly why reverse tilt mechanisms are not, it's not the right avenue to take. Absolutely. Well, and and one other thing too, to just to just to cap it off, we had a, a customer at the previous company who insisted that he, you know, we we'd done it wrong by mounting it flush to the roof, which you know he he said no, I want that like adjustable tilt mechanism that I, I you know I don't need it to be automatic. I'm going to go up there a couple times a year and you know manually crank it myself to be you know the optimal azimuth for that season or whatever. We did the math that alone would add a whopping two percent efficiency gain if you were to do that so for the amount of extra cost on the scope of work the bill of materials there and the risk that you'd be adding with the wind loads that we're talking about and just the absolute pain in the ass like absolutely not worth it never going to pay for itself so that's that's part of it is just hey it's it's easiest it's safest it's best just to match the stay flush with the tilt aesthetically it's pleasing aesthetically yes thank you in other words fly yeah (laughs) it's funny we hear we hear homeowners ask all the time is you know is this in the right spot is this going to look well once it's on their roof i've had solar on my roof since 2015 and I've never once looked up at it from my yard and I only see it when I'm driving like literally on the back road behind my yard. I very rarely <laughs> see my solar system and I've, I've got a fairly large system. I think I have uh, 9.6 KW on my roof. And quite honestly, I've never, I've never actually paid attention to it as I'm driving mm-hmm. by. I'd love to hear what your wife has to say about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing, I'm <laughs> but you're right. I, I, I think, think that's a very good science call. up there. Most homeowners look at it for the first month and they're like, check this out. Look what I got. But after that time, it, it just fades away and it becomes a part of the home. Yep. Yeah. And well, and and I, uh, I always use the line. Honestly, it ends up looking just kind of like a skylight in a way because the panels are really sleek, black on black. We're not going to have a lot of crazy looking. It, it, it's not going to look like an industrial plant on your roof. It's going to look pretty, pretty, you know, unobtrusive, really, when it comes down to it. It's mm-hmm. a good point. All right, well, let's let's shimmy on down here to talk about roof material real quick. If you've ever run into a situation where a homeowner's roof is in bad shape, that's always a great chance to upsell, honestly. Um, and, and we'll touch on that a little bit more, but just getting familiar with the types, the most common types of materials that you're going to see out there on the doors is always key just to arm yourself with the knowledge ahead of time. Um, in some parts of the country, asphalt composite shingles are going to be the most standard thing you see. Definitely common. Spanish tile or other types of tile are also super, super common in California. Not so much in other parts of the country, uh, depending on where you're at. I mean, maybe maybe in the south, the southwest, but you'll also have metal. Um, you're you're going to see that eh, occasionally here and there, usually a little bit more in like mountainous climates. You might see that more up by Tahoe, probably. And then the last thing you'll also run into is shake. And that's a that's a four letter word around here, just because uh, essentially your your roof is covered in kindling, and so we will not install on that. That's a basically a required re roof, just to meet codes of the day. 
one other thing that we'd like to talk about too, and I'll, and Jack, I'll let you take the the road on these since you're familiar with it. But uh, anytime you got a patio or a pergola or any kind of awning that somebody wants to load up panels on, that that can be a good option. And then we also have ground mounts, the the infamous. Hey, I have all this uh, you know backyard space. I just want to put a big old set of panels out there. Uh, you know why why isn't that easier than putting it on my roof? Take it away, my friend. Wow, this thing's it seems loaded and power packed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right, Danny. Um, the top four that you're looking at: the concrete tile, the asphalt shingle, the metal roof, the S tile and W tile that you commonly see throughout Southern California. All of these are 100% go all day long. We'll take them. Very rarely are we saying no to any one of these unless there's some sort of structural issue or wear and tear type issue where it hasn't been maintained for, you know, 20, 30 years. Like, yeah, the top four are no brainers. The bottom two are challenging and the bottom two are challenging really for two reasons. Clay tile and lightweight tile fall into the same category. They're typically super brittle. It doesn't matter if I sent my five-year-old grandson up onto that roof. The minute he steps on one of them, it's going to break. Uh, lightweight tile is typically classified as, I believe, seven pounds each or less. And clay tile is literally made out of like a ceramic clay. When you step on it, it's every bit as brittle as an unkiln-burned piece of pottery. If you drop it, it's going to break, right? Jack, those are good points. I would like to backspace a little bit. Um, yeah. It's a nine pound tile or less for lightweight. Oh, my bad. I thought it was seven, but maybe it is nine. We'll have to double check. We'll let Jeremiah handle it on the roofing side. Fix it in post. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. it, you may be right. It may be nine. Yeah. When it comes to shake, most of the shake roofs that you see are really being eliminated today. And it's really for two primary reasons. One, it's not a very structurally sound roof. There's not a lot of places to pound into it and actually secure onto uh, trusses and or rafters, as you've seen, just because of the age. It's mostly post and beam type roofs that have uh, shakes on them. Mm -hmm. The other part of this is that we're actually putting an electrical mechanism up on a very dry piece of wood. And the last thing we want to do is have some sort of an arc fault, create a fire. Now, all of a sudden, we've got a liability issue. Contrary to popular belief, it has nothing to do with, you know, shake roofs are more leaky than others. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's more about the stability of the roof type that it's on, the construction method. And then we're putting an electrical component up on their roof. If there was any ever to be an arc or a spark and it were to create a fire, we just don't want to be part of that liability. Yeah. Um, so the top four are super good to go. Love all of those. Um, metal roofs, concrete, we're certainly the fastest on asphalt and concrete tile. I do want to touch on Spanish tile. Spanish tiles are typically mortared down. They are not the standard S and W tile that you see made out of concrete. Spanish tiles are literally using mortar and you primarily find these along the coast where there's strong winds. ESP doesn't have to worry too much about Spanish tile, but it does pop up. And one of the places that comes to mind is Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara has a lot of Spanish tile where it absolutely is concreted or mortared to the tile below it. And so when we go to install a system here, the reason we don't want to necessarily be involved in that is the only way to peel these tiles back to get roof penetration is to actually cut them off the roof in sections. Break so them. 
yeah, you end up cutting tile sections two feet wide by four feet wide or four feet wide by four feet wide and lifting them off the roof so that you can actually get to the trusses and do your, you know, roof penetrations. If you get one that's tiled down, it's either going to come with a tremendously big adder for us to actually do the work, or we're just going to flat out say, no, we don't want to take on the liability of it. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. There's a lot of companies that won't touch Spanish clay tile. So yeah. thankfully ESP were professional enough and we can take these on uh, more times than not. So I think that's a great uh, aspect. What should a sales rep in the field look for if they're out knocking in say Santa Barbara uh, and if they're looking up a overhead, are they going to be able to spot that from street level? Yeah, you're definitely going to be able to spot it from street level. You can actually see it in the, uh, in the folder here in our visual aid here, here. Yep. you've got that mortar joint that's between each tile and it's literally it's literally cementing each tile to one another and without a doubt you can see it from the street yeah, yeah. I, I typically when i'm walking up to a house i'll look for that thickness and jack i think you concur you know it's thinner you know, yeah the tiles are actually about like this instead of the concrete that's a little thicker so that's a good indicator too Let's um let's slide over to the patio perugula one. Um, we've got some great bullet points off to the right. We want it to be existing. It has to be structurally sound, meaning we need to be able to pull calc data for it to make sure that we can put X number of panels on it and that it meets a wind load requirement. But man, the middle one, the middle one in there is probably the single biggest holdup because a lot of patio covers are not permitted. They had their neighbor who was a framer come over, throw a couple lags into the header above the door, and then they just started post and beaming this thing off of a concrete slab that was existing. Or so, the worst, you buy the house, it's like that. You thought it was permitted because your real estate didn't tell you. <laughs> yep, correct. And most of times, right, I, I really don't think homeowners are truly trying to be dishonest. True. I think if they don't know, they'll tell us that they don't know. But mm-hmm. it's it's very rare that a homeowner is going to like have an unpermitted structure and not know it unless, of course, they bought the house in that condition, at which point they're going to say when when we ask the question, hey, was that patio cover permit? They're going to go, I bought it that way. I don't really know. And then obviously we've got to do some legwork through the cities and municipalities to find out. And we usually find out the hard way. Is is that something again, like from from the sales rep on the street, uh, or let's say you know this is probably in their backyard. Assuming like, are they going to be able to take a look at it and see some maybe telltale signs that it might not have had an inspector lay eyes on it? Yeah, so there's definitely some things that they could look for, right? They could definitely look for lags into a header that would actually support the joists. Um, most joists have what's called joist hangers that are used to actually hold them in place. Now, a joist hanger is a little metal uh, clip that hangs off yeah. of the... It's sort of like a big U-shape, right? It, it is. Yeah. It is. It, it hangs off the ledger board, and then literally your joists drop into that. If you don't see those, there's a pretty good sign that it might not have been permitted. If, if and you then, just see a bunch of nails sticking out instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, lots of times, contractors will actually raise their posts up off the concrete 
so they're not sitting mm-hmm. on concrete. If you see one sitting directly on concrete, that might be a good indication that it's not permitted as well. Um, usually your posts have to go either into the ground or they have to be, um, again, some sort of structural metal tie oh, holds them up foot. off the ground. Yeah, something like that, right? So those are a couple of good things to look for. But ultimately, we're going to start with the homeowner and what they know. Then we're going to yeah. take a look at it at site survey. Yeah, and check and check city records. So yeah. yep. And then for ground mounts, um, we do a lot of ground mounts. We actually do more ground mounts than I thought when I was coming to ESP. We actually do more ground mounts than I thought we actually ever would. If I had to guess at it, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of three percent of our sales are ground mount, and I would I would guess that's a large number overall, considering the total number of installs we did last year. of those were ground mounts. So we did a tremendous amount of ground mounts. Things to look for in ground mounts. The number one killer of a ground mount is slope. Um, Just because you have that slope in the backyard and it's facing south doesn't mean that we can actually, you know, use that terrain to to drill into for footings. Um, The second biggest killer of a ground mount is distance. How far away is it going to be from the spot of tie-in? you know, a hundred a hundred feet is is okay. It's there's a there's a lot of them that are, are about a hundred feet. But when we start going further in distance, every uh, I think it's every twenty five feet further in distance we go, we end up having to increase the wire size so that we don't have a, as large of a voltage drop getting from the inverter to the um, the main panel. Right. So the two biggest killers trying to do it on a slope. And the second one is uh, distance, right? We we don't want to just unnecessarily add cost because they want it on the ground. They could save both of those costs by putting it on the roof. It's easier. It's faster. We already know that it's a permitted structure. Like we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. That's the perfect thing right there. Why is a ground mount harder than putting it on the roof? Because we have to put a structure in place for the panels to mount to we can't just slap them on the ground and plug them in like the the home we know is uh like like we were talking about wind shear that's a solid structure that we're putting the panels on we need to create a new solid structure that's going to hold up to all those environmental factors on a ground mount yeah and to my knowledge i believe there's multiple inspections in this case right we have footing in oh yeah Oh yeah, dude. You have a you have a trench inspection. Usually trench and footing happen at the same time. Then they'll come back for you know post panels and make sure that we've backfilled. There's an inspection, then there's final. Like there's a bunch, there's there's at least three inspections that go along with a solar ground mount. Whereas typically you only have one when you're talking about a roof inspection, right? There's yeah. some jurisdictions that do require a footing inspection, but I don't want to I don't want to make the the one odd duck make it sound like it applies to everybody. Sure. It's one odd duck that requ- Bakersfield. Bakersfield wants a footing inspection. I don't know why. They just do. <laughs> and because they do, they're unique. Yeah. I, I think this falls in line with setting proper expectations. Ground melts yeah. naturally take longer for that very reason. Yeah, One of the um, biggest things I always see in in the sales world uh, about ground mounts is, oh, just put it up against this fence. But actually, the ground mount has to be a specific amount of distance away from the property line, property depending lines. on the yep. jurisdiction that you're in. 
And so that eliminates the size of the system. It eliminates the scope of the system. And one of the different things that each AHJ or jurisdiction has is, you know, there's different soil in different places. So Bakersfield has a specific type of soil a lot of the times where they have to do soil testing to see if that concrete caisson where they put the concrete in the ground and then put the post in, if that's going to stay, if the earth moves and when it does, because it's going to, it's always moving and shaking. Um, And so depending on where you're at, if you're on a hill, if it's dirt, if it's granite, if it's whatever type of earth you're drilling into, there's a lot of different factors. And again, those can play big into setting the proper expectations, how long it takes. Um, And so we love a roof mount over a ground mount all day long. I'm I'm glad you brought up I want to go one step further on your your point, because I think it's super valid. We can do a site survey all day long but we're not geologists. Yeah. Like we're not pulling core samples. We have no idea what's two feet down Mm -hmm. and it it could be farmland, which is great. If it is, we're just running a trencher and it makes super easy or it could be decomposed granite, which is what half of San Diego is Mm -hmm. decomposed granite. If you don't know, is as hard as a rock. Like it's literally like a boulder and to trench through that, to get up to the main panel or to bore down 24 36 inches to get your footing depth deep enough like it it becomes a a a task and when we do it for a fixed price it's great we have to come back to sales and say hey listen this one's probably undersold because of the conditions of the soil man sales gets really really mad at us and we don't want them mad at us we value them we value how they go out and do the job so what you're saying is probably uh, a savvy sales rep is going to be an amateur archaeologist and just be able to pick up a rock and lick it and say, "Oh yeah, that's decomposed granite right there. We gotta, we're gonna need one." It's so great. Uh, I Let's go the other way. A veteran sales rep who's done a few of them and who has run into it is going to have those battle scars, right? And I call them scars. I don't mean that in the negative way. It's sort of like stripes on your uniform for years of service, right? Mm-hmm. And he's going to he's gonna have those stripes on his sleeve for years of service. And the homeowner is going to go, you know, I really thought about it here. And then the savvy sales rep is going to go, you know, that's a pretty good spot. But is there a reason why you're not considering that giant south-facing roof you have or that giant west-facing roof you have? Because that's already a structure that exists that we could use. And we can put 12 or 14 kilowatts up on there if that's what you're after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to I want to definitely just take a take a pause there saying we don't want to scare anybody off of any particular type of project. We can do ground mounts. Obviously, Jack, mm-hmm. you just said it. We'll do them all day long. But there has to be a good reason and there have to be proper expectations set. They can be an awesome option. I mean, we did. Yeah. At, at the uh, previous company, as long as the as long as the ground, the site for it is the right spot and and everybody knows what's going into it going in and coming out then yeah i, I think they're i think they're pretty cool we've done the this this one in our visual aid i realized that for a podcast a a slide deck is sort of <laughs> not really the uh, the appropriate medium but that's fine um yeah again you can see all this uh on our website and um social media will post some good assets for everybody to chew on after this 
Well, I think oh. we chewed, speaking of chewing, I think we chewed that one to the bone. So let's move <laughs> on. Um, just another quick plug. If you ever see a roof that's in bad shape, know that we offer roofing quotes. Uh, our roofing department is awesome and uh, we make it pretty easy to get a quote from them to add in. About one in six of our projects uh, include roof jobs. So great option for the homeowner. Gives them, you know, extra extra tax bennies and, and longer lasting Gives them gives them really sound uh, uh, structural integrity for the the platform that we're installing the solar on. That's going to do it for episode one of the ESP PPE podcast: How to Spot Solar Ready Roofs, Part One. Tune in next time for the continuation of this episode and even more great stuff. See you then. The views expressed herein may or may not represent the views of Energy Service Partners Incorporated, its ownership, management, affiliates, or subsidiaries. No construction project is guaranteed to be free from errors at any stage, and nothing contained in this recording should be taken to imply otherwise. 